Pastor Paul, so glad to, to be back with you guys. Um, just to follow up something that, that Shannon Piper talked about related to Easter, um, if you've celebrated Easter with us over the last several years, you know one of the things that we love to do is we love to celebrate baptisms on Easter morning. And depending upon your denominational background or church history, those sort of things, that might seem like a strange thing um, that you do on a Sunday morning, particularly Easter. Um, but, you know, interestingly, in the early church, Easter was one of the prime um, windows in which new people, new Christians professed their faith in Christ and were sort of ushered into the church and publicly proclaimed their faith through, through baptism. And so this is going to be a great Sunday as we, as we do that. Now, let me just say this. One of the things, we, we don't often do what, what we would call altar calls here at Four Oaks, and for a couple of reasons. One, we don't really see them in the Bible, or at least in the way they're often uh, practiced in the current church, um, but also in a, in, a, in a place where there is just a lot of um, Christians in name only, it can kind of sometimes create confusion, right? That, those, that, that by coming down the aisle, that that necessarily means you're a Christian, um, which doesn't necessarily mean that. We know that. Now, you know there's a but coming, but let me say this. One of the things that we cannot get away from in the New Testament is the fact that when people came to know Christ, they publicly proclaimed their faith in Christ. They publicly identified themselves through baptism. It was an opportunity for the people of God to come, to come around them and to hear their testimony and, and to celebrate with them. So in a lot of ways, Easter is the perfect time, right? We're celebrating the new life of Christ, the new resurrected life. Of course, we're going to celebrate that with one another. If you've never publicly professed your faith in Christ, you, uh, if maybe you've never followed him in baptism, um, again, um, those are important things to consider. Um, maybe you've, just, you've, you've seen baptisms, you've never really known what it's all about. But if you'd like to know more, you have questions about that. Maybe you just have questions about Jesus in general. Um, we have some elders and pastors up here after the service. We'd love to talk to you, answer any questions that you have, talk about what that might look like and mean in your own life. All right, so that's Easter coming up. It's going to be a great time. But this morning, we are back in Romans 8, so I invite you to open your Bibles there. We're going to be in Romans 8, 26 through 30. Now, Susan and I, the lovely and gracious Susan Gilbert, we have four children, and by God's sheer grace, I've taught all of them to drive, okay? One on a stick shift, and all I want to say about that is, how do you like them apples, dads? Okay, that's all I got to say about that. And besides parking, which is clearly the most difficult thing to teach, as all of our front bumpers on our cars would testify, right? Amen. Um, one of the hardest things to teach is how to merge onto the freeway. And, and parents, you know this to be true. Rule number one, and if you're one of these people, God bless your spouse, okay? But, but you, rule number one, merging onto the freeway, do not stop, right? And, and better, don't even slow down. Like, just get a big head of steam and hopefully, Lord willing, merge into the crazy amount of traffic so that you don't get yourself or someone else killed. Don't be that guy, like, who stops on the merging ramp, right? Don't be that person, right? Well, in a lot of ways, as I've been out the last several weeks, and I feel like I'm trying to merge back into life, I feel like I'm not like driving a car. I'm driving one of those go-karts you, you rent at Fun Station. You know what I'm talking about? 
And not just any go-kart at Fun Station, the one that gets lapped by everybody. You've ever driven that one? And, and I keep like pressing the pedal and I'm wanting to go and it just can't, I can't quite get up to speed. And this reminds me, it reminds you that that's one of the things that, that grief does to us, doesn't it? That, that our bodies, our minds are wanting to do something, but we just can't, you know, muster that emotional, spiritual energy. And we've been talking about here, and Paul has been talking about here in, in Romans 8, this idea of groaning with grief. You know, life is, is hard enough. But when you have to, to run it with ankle weights, it becomes that much harder. That's, that's what grief does. And Paul in Romans 8 has been talking um, to a people who have been groaning with grief, right? They, they have burdens in their life. They, they've been ostracized from their church. They live under the boot of the Roman Empire. Some of them have been kicked out of their cities and, and their homes. And Paul is writing to talk about where is their hope and what do they place their hope in? But it's a reminder, right? All of us are grieving and, and groaning about something in, in, a, in, a, in a real biblical sense, right? There's Christians in Ukraine this morning right now who are groaning. There's, there's many of you who are groaning over death or incurable diseases or diagnoses. Others of you might be groaning in grief about your marriage or maybe the, the spiritual status of your children. Some of you may, be, may despair, be despairing, grieving over your finances or your living situation. I don't ask, are you, are you groaning? Are you grieving? We all have, will, or will be groaning, grieving about something. And what Paul's, one of Paul's central messages in Romans 8 is that we don't groan in despair. Yes, we grieve. Paul says, but we don't grieve as those without hope. Jesus, Paul says, is coming back to make things right. Now, the reality is you can 100% agree with that, right? I, I, I agree with that, Pastor Paul. My hope is in Christ. I know he's going to come back. I'm gonna, I know he's going to make things right. But what about right now? How, how do I live in grief right now? How do, I, how do I groan right now? How do I wait for the Lord right now? And it's this idea of waiting in hope that Paul wants to talk to us this morning. And he wants us to know, for folks, what God does for us as we wait. And so we're going to be in Romans 8, 26 through 30. And I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word together. And I forgot to read my, I forgot to bring my Reader's Digest version of the Bible, you know, with the big print. And so, because I'm that age, I'm, I'm doing all kind of crazy stuff with my Bible. Just, just go with it, right? Verse 26 in Romans 8 says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, we're asking that you would open our eyes to the things that are most real about you and us. Lord, it feels like the things that are most real are the things that we can see and taste and touch and put our hands on. But Lord, you want us to shift our gaze. You want to widen our perspective. You want us to see the magnificence of your glory and who you are and what you are doing on our behalf, those who trust in you. So Father, we ask now that you would bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. Verse 26, Paul tells us his agenda right off. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And what, what Paul's about to do is he's going to tell us how. How does God help us in our weakness? How does he help us as we wait? How does he help us as we grieve? How does he help us as, as we groan? And there's going to be three things I think Paul wants to draw our attention to, and here they are. Number one, God helps us, first of all, by praying for us. Number two, God helps us by working for us. And then thirdly, God helps us by delivering us. Okay, that's where we're going in these next few minutes. Now, if you look back in verses 15 and 16 in Romans 8, Paul reminds us, of this amazing but mysterious truth. And it's simply this. While God is with you, that's 100% true. While God works through you, that's 100% true. While God walks with you, while he's present, while he empowers, while he leads, all those things are 100% true. But there's something that's additionally true for the believer that is just mind-blowing, and it's simply this. For those who are trusting in Jesus, God is not just alongside of you. In fact, God dwells in you. He lives in you. He, he, he sets up shop. He sets up camp in your heart. He's not just with us. He's not just in the same room, but he's actually living inside of us. And one of the things that we may have never thought about, maybe you haven't, and I haven't that much, to be honest, so I studied this passage what is the Spirit doing while he lives in us? It's kind of a scary thought, right? You're going about your day, you're doing your thing. What's God's Spirit who lives inside of you doing? And for some of us, hopefully not eating the same things we're eating, right? Especially after this last weekend for, for myself. And, and we can see all through Scripture, there's many things that the Spirit does, right? The Spirit, we know, comforts us. The Spirit convicts us. The Spirit leads us. The Spirit encourages us. He guides us. But verse 26, Paul tells us a specific thing that he's doing that I think can just be transformative in the way that we walk with Christ. And here it is. Look at verse 26. He tells us that the Spirit is praying for us. Now just think about how mind-blowing that is. You may not think about this, but you may be going about your day in your job, your parenting, your work, your leisure, your, work, your activities, when you're sleeping, 
There may be times in your life you're not thinking, you know, consciously about Jesus at all, but guess what? Jesus never stops thinking about you. He's always praying for you. Even when you're not praying, be encouraged, believer. Remember, he's faithful even when we're not faithful. He's praying for you on your behalf. And Paul tells us in 26 and 27 here, one of the reasons that he prays for us, and, and, and here it is, as simply put, we often don't know what to pray. Is, is that not like brutally honest? Paul's, Paul's very clear. You gotta love the Bible. It is so real. Paul says we often don't know what to pray. I mean, we know in a general, general way we need God. We need his leading. We need his resources. We need his guidance. We need his provision. But quite honestly, sometimes we don't know exactly what that looks like. We, we, we don't know what his, his help, what form it comes to us. Paul Tripp um, often says that every morning he gets up and he prays, God, um, send me your help and let me, give me the discernment to know who my helpers are and in what form that help is coming to. And so oftentimes we don't know. Paul says, that's okay. Even when you don't know what to pray, Jesus knows what to pray for you. I was reminded of this. I've been reading about, a lot about Martin Luther this season as we're getting ready to take this Reformation trip here in a couple of months, and there's still, still a couple of spots available if you're interested, come talk to me. But one of the things that, that we know is that Luther struggled mightily with his conscience. He had an incredibly sensitive conscience. And as he was a priest in training, a lot of, the, a lot of the fe his fellow priests and monks would go into the confessional to confess their sins for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Luther was not satisfied with that. Luther sometimes would disappear into the confessional for five hours, six hours at a time. Sometimes he had his confessor going, okay, Luther, that's enough. All right, we're, we, we, we've, we, we've covered all the territory of your heart. But one of the things that kept Luther in anguish is that he oftentimes didn't know like, who, is this God or is this me? Is this the devil afflicting me or is this God trying to convict me? He didn't know. He was incredibly confused and all he knew to do at that point was just to cry out to God. And here's the amazing thing. Even though Luther did not know what he needed, God knew what he needed it just so happened at this time in his life as he's crying out to God, Luther is teaching through the book of, get one, chat, one chance to guess, right? Romans. And, and he's at Romans 1, 16 and 17. He's reading about the righteousness of God and he's terrified. Because Luther, I mean, he's, he's a dude in tune with his sin. And he understands this idea of the righteousness of God. That can't be good news because I'm unrighteous and God is righteous. And righteous is something I have to be to have God love me and accept me. And so this is, it was a terrible passage for him. Until one day, Luther didn't know what he ought to be praying, but the Spirit prayed for him to open his eyes to what was meant in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And it was like the lights came on for Luther because he realized righteousness was not something that he earned. Righteousness was something that was given as a gift of God to him and credited to his account. And I think all of us fellow OCD sufferers, which Luther clearly was, right, 
can get great relief from that, that even when we are confused, even when we are uncertain, even when we don't know what to pray, Jesus knows exactly what to pray for us. And it tells us here, look back at the text, he prays according to his will. Now, a lot of times in prayer, a point of great struggle for so many of us is that we often wonder why God doesn't give us what we ask for or why he doesn't give it to us when we ask for it. Or let's be honest, sometimes why God gives, seemingly gives us the very opposite thing that we've been asking him for. And the reason, okay, we can take great comfort in this verse that God is praying for us is that even though we don't know what to pray, God knows what to pray for us. And listen to how Tim Keller says this. I love the way he says this. He said, now you gotta think about this. Because God is praying for you, he says, God will give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knew. Isn't that good? If you knew everything God knew, you would not pray sometimes the way you pray. But because God sees all, he knows all, he's omniscient, he's sovereign, he's over everything, he knows exactly what we need, when we need it, how we need it, and how the other people in our life need him as well. I find that, by the way, just incredibly encouraging. Incredibly encouraging. Now, Paul goes on, let's look back at the text. Paul also talks about the way God prays for us. And Paul says that he prays for us by, and this, this is, sounds a little weird, by groanings, things that cannot be understood. And I don't think Paul here is talking about some sort of secret tongue or prayer language. Here's where I think he's going with this. Remember back when Pastor Rob preached on Romans 8 about this idea of groaning. And there's really kind of two kind of groanings in life, right? First of all, there's the groaning of creation. We look out on the world, and, we, and we're like, the world, the created order, is a broken place. There are natural disasters. There are, there's disease and war and famine and um, environmental corruption, and there is, there, there is this curse that lies over the earth, and what do we pray? We groan like, God, like, fix your creation. Restore order. Make things right. But there's also a kind of groaning that we see that's much more personal. And this is the kind of groaning all of us find ourselves instinctively doing. This is a spiritual groaning. This is a groaning that we do inside when we understand that spiritually, relationally, things are not the way they're supposed to be. That relationship should not be broken that way. That 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 loved one's struggles in, of mental health or intractable disease, they, they, they shouldn't be that way. That, that wayward child, that conflictual marriage, God, I just, I'm groaning and I'm, and I'm asking you to come and fix that and make things the way they're supposed to be. Now, it's interesting, what is the difference in groaning and complaining? Ever thought about that? Complaining, I think I would define this way, complaining tends to be oriented to self. 
Complaining tends to be oriented towards how the things around me are inconveniencing me. My internet won't go as fast as I want it to. I'm dealing with Tallahassee drivers and um, I need to get to somewhere faster than I can and I'm, and I'm complaining, I'm murmuring, I'm grumbling. See, all complaining is oriented to self. Groaning is oriented to God. Groaning is crying out to him and asking him to show up and restore shalom, restore order. And so when Paul says that the spirit is groaning, here's what I think Paul means. I think Paul means that the spirit is coming down to our level. See, we're, we're like little kids playing with our Tonka toys, our Legos, our building blocks. And Jesus, through his spirit, comes down. And he gets, sits cross-legged with us. And he says, let me, let me, let me groan right along with you. Let me get down to your level. And let me identify with you. Because one of the most powerful things, let me just say this, one of the most powerful things that we can do when others are suffering and others are groaning is not to write down the 10 things that we just can't wait to say to this person in their grief. Because that's always really helpful. Have you found that, right? Like when you're really grieving and in sorrow and somebody comes and gives you a lecture, that's always helpful. No, of course not. One of the most powerful things that we can do for people is simply to exercise the ministry of presence. Just be there. Just show up. And is that not like one of the most comforting things? When you know someone is there for you and they may not have all the answers, but they're there and they love you and they want to encourage you, I think this is the imagery Paul is drawing on. He says the Spirit groans on our behalf. Now, the Spirit is much more than simply a friend, right? He's superior, he's better, which means that not only does he get down on our level and groan with us, but he transforms our groans into requests. Things that, I mean, we're just mumbling, bumbling two and three-year-olds, right? And the Spirit comes down and he helps us and he translates those requests into the very things we would have asked if we simply had the maturity, if we simply knew, if we simply knew what God does. Here, here, here's an application point before we leave this, this point. I know some of us, 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 struggle mightily with praying. And, and if you get down to it, a lot of times what, why we struggle is, Pastor Paul, I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to say. I don't, I just kind of sit there and I just, I don't know where to go with it. And you know, the best prescription, and I don't mean to be cute in this, maybe just a little bit. The best prescription for not praying is just start praying. Start talking. Start crying out to God. It's okay if you don't know what to say. It's okay if, if you're confused. It's okay, right? If you're not sure where you want to take this prayer. Sometimes it may just simply be, God, I'm crying out to you. I'm in, I'm in a desperate place, God. I don't even know what to pray. I don't know what to pray for my child. I don't know what to pray about this situation. Um, 
it's not only I don't have wisdom, I I don't even know where to begin. Guess what? It says the Spirit intercedes for you. He gets down on your level and intercedes for you and translates your groanings to God. I just find that, again, an incredibly precious promise. One of the best things, I mean, just open your, you may just say, you know, God, I don't know where to begin. I'm going to open my Bible to Romans 8, and I'm just going to read. You can read. And as you're reading, you can read something and just call out to God, God, make that true. God, do that work. I I pray that for my child. I pray that for my marriage. I pray that for my soul. I pray that for for my church. The best way out of not praying is just, Start praying, having a conversation with God. This is what Paul points us to. This is the first way that God helps us as we wait. Here's a, and here's a promise, and then, then we're on to the next verse. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, here it is, I will never cast out. Love that verse. All right, number, number two, God prays for us but he also helps us by working for us. Now, this brings us to verse 28. If Romans is your favorite book, Romans 8 is your favorite chapter, then undoubtedly Romans 8, 28 is your favorite verse, right? Like if you were a child of the 80s, you had a cross stitch of Romans 8, 28. Like you had a refrigerator magnet, you had a t-shirt, that's somebody running across the plains. I mean, you, you have it. So I'm gonna read this and I'm gonna pray that God will bring this alive in a, in a new way. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, interestingly, this verse is so ubiquitous in Christendom, it's even made its way into popular pop culture, right? And you hear variations of it in the cultural vernacular. You know, you may hear it, you you may hear it watching the final four this weekend. Everything happens for a reason. Like Duke losing, that, that's, a, that, that's a glorious thing, all right? The, the, sorry, the best is yet to come, all right? Someday everything will, will make perfect sense. And of course, in those things, there's just enough truth to be dangerous. But here's something we have to recognize is that there's actually parameters in place for this verse. In other words, this verse is not true in the same way for Christians and non-Christians. This is actually a verse that is a very precious promise to those who know Christ, okay? Particularly, as Paul says here, look back at verse 8, for those who love God. Now, it doesn't mean if you love God, God will make everything work for you. That's not what it means. it's, it's, it's It's a metaphor that Paul is using. In other words, those who love God, those who are called by God, those who belong to God, those who are trusting in God, Here is the promise. Paul says, for those who love God, God is in absolute sovereign control of everything and everyone. And that he is working a very specific purpose that's different from people who are his versus those who aren't. This doesn't mean that God is not sovereign over all the world. It doesn't mean that God is not in control over every person and every action. What this does mean, Christian, is that there is a particular design God has for you 
as a believer that is unique to you. And here it is. Let's look back at the text. He says, believer, for those who, who love God, he works all things for good. And it's very important that we understand what Paul means by good. Because the way sinful fallen humanity might define good is probably very different and oftentimes is very different than what God defines as good. I think it's good to win the lottery, right? Okay. Um, and by the way, if God blesses you with that, you, we would expect your 10% to be given back to the church. Okay. Now understand, John Piper at his church doesn't accept lottery money. We have no such scruples okay, at all, <laughs> at all. Good. What is the good? It is all seriousness. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his son. That is the good. Everything that happens in your life, whether good or evil or seemingly indifferent or neutral, God is using that thing, he's working that thing to make you, to conform you to the image of his son. Now, that may sound like Christians speak to you. Of course, I want to be like Jesus. Now, just think about what, what Paul is saying here. Guys, all of us will be conformed to someone's image. Think about that. That's a scary thought, right? Be conformed to a parent's image, a media figure's image, a sports figure's image, a cultural image. But when we talk about being conformed to the image of Jesus... Remember, Jesus was the happiest person who ever lived. He was the more, most joyful person who's ever lived. He was the most trusting person. He was the most serving person. All the things that we as believers would aspire to, God says, I'm taking the things that are happening in your life and I'm using them to make you more like him. Now, please understand something. It does not say Okay, be very careful. It does not say that everything that happens in your life is good. Did you hear that? It doesn't say all things are good. Guys, sexual abuse is not good. Child exploitation is not good. Racism is not good. And I could, war is not good. And we could, we could carry the list on and on and on. So first of all, Paul does not say all things that happen in your life are good. What he says is that all things without exception are used and orchestrated and designed by God for his glory and for the good of his grace in your life. I mean, and, and, and all means what? All. Because you realize there is not one iota of human event, history, sin, wickedness, evil, good or bad, that falls outside the scope of God's sovereignty. Not one thing. And guys, would you have it any other way? Think about it. Would you have it any other way? Would, I mean, would you want to say, well, all things work together for good except these particular things that were a surprise to God. God didn't see that coming. God didn't know that was going to happen. God's kind of like part of the cleanup crew. He, he, couldn't, he didn't foresee it. He couldn't stop it. He just kind of makes the most of it after the fact. That's not what it says. 
It says that God has a specific design through all things. It doesn't say all things except cancer. It doesn't say all things except marital conflict. All things except COVID. All things except your finances. All things except your wayward children. It doesn't say that. What it says is there's nothing that happens by happenstance in your life, all orchestrated by God for your good. And guess what? That's been God's plan from the beginning. Look back at the verse. It says, God predestined us. Now, what is that word? Predestined means to decide beforehand, right? So he says, God, in his foreknowledge, predestined us. And this does not mean, by the way, that God sort of looked down the corridors of time and he saw how you would respond to this or that in your life. And he knew you would respond in this way. And so he sort of orchestrated events sort of conform to kind of your sovereignty and what you were going to do. Guys, that's not what the word means. The word foreknowledge means to know intimately, to set one's heart and mind and affections on. It comes from the Old Testament. It means yadah. It means to know in an intimate way. You see, if, if, if to say that God doesn't really predestine things, he, he only like foresees what's going to happen and then kind of comes in after the fact. God, guess what? It makes you sovereign, not God. But rather, it says, for those whom God foreknew, he predestined. In other words, he decided ahead of time that those who belonged to him were going to be conformed to his image. And guys, if, if, you're, if, you have, if you're having a hard time keeping these things together, right? And it's, it's hard. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a stretch. How can God be sovereign over all things? And, but yet there be an evil, but yet God be sovereign over that, but yet still be working these things in my life. And guys, the best example I know to bring to you biblically is the case of God's own son, Jesus Christ. Remember, Peter is preaching to the crowds in Acts 2, and what does he say? You lawless, sinful men of a cruel and wicked generation, he says, you crucified the son of God. And he calls them out right on it, not all things are good. But then he says this, who was delivered up according to the what? Definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Oh, guys, that is a philosophical quandary that, that I don't think Scripture invites us in to get lost in. It, God is simply want us, wants us to recognize that his sovereignty is absolute and that he is working all things together for you're good. This is the way Jared, uh, Jared Wilson puts this. I love this quote. Beautiful ironies of the cross. As they mock him, they submit to prophecy. As they lift him, they exalt him. As they kill him, he conquers. Now, let me just ask you a question. What difference does having Romans 8.28 etched on your heart make? And I would say it makes all the difference. Not only was it the banner over the cross, it's also the banner over your life. When, when, when things happen, whether, whether they are whether they're evil or wickedness or sin or inconvenience, how do you respond? Do you, do you become embittered? 
Do you shake your fist at God? Do you invite God up to the witness stand so that you can interrogate him and bring a charge against him? Do you curse God? Do you bring an accusation? But guys, when Romans 8.28 is your banner, when God writes it over your heart, then it becomes the great spiritual reframe, does it not? You say instead, God, what, what are you doing? I, I don't understand. I cry out to you. I don't know what to pray. I know what you're doing is for my good. Give me the eyes to see. God, um, what are you trying to teach me about yourself? God, what, what, are, what are you trying to, to teach me about myself? God, what are you revealing to me? What are you wanting me to learn? And guys, this is, this is, this is, a, this is hard. This is difficult. That's why we what? Groan. That's why we cry out. But we groan and cry out not out of sheer despair, but out of the knowledge that God is praying for us and he is working for us. Okay, last point. We'll go through this one quickly. We'll be done. The last way God helps us is by delivering us. Let's be clear what we mean when we say that God helps us by delivering us. It doesn't mean, and this should be obvious, okay, that God's going to deliver us from all the suffering of this life. Um, I heard Jerry Wilson use this quote, and it comes from the sound of music, you know, when, when God, when God opens the door, closes the door, he always opens a window, all that stuff, right? Well, sometimes God closes the door so that he can bring the building collapsing all around us. Sometimes that happens. It really does. The whole point of this text is not that God delivers us from all human suffering in this life, right? The point is that God has an even bigger agenda for you and me than that. In other words, think bigger. Expand your heart and your imagination. And verse 30 tells us what God is after. And it's way bigger than our convenience in this life. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This verse has been called by theologians the golden chain of salvation, which means every link of this chain is bound inseparably to the other and cannot be separated. It's, it's the Excalibur sword of the Christian faith. So think about this. God says those he's called, he justifies. There it is. I'm sorry, those he, I'm sorry, those he, those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorifies. What Paul is saying is that what God is guaranteeing you here, Christian, is your perseverance is your salvation. He's saying that what he has begun in you, he will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Guys, one of the number one pastoral care questions people ask, Pastor Paul, can someone lose their salvation? And what they really mean is, Pastor Paul, can I lose my salvation? And when, when is it that we doubt our salvation the most? It's when we struggle. It's when we sin. It's when we are experientially far apart from God. And I love to quote John MacArthur at a time like that because this is what MacArthur says. You've heard me say it before. People ask him, can, 
Pastor John, can we lose our salvation? And he says, if you could, you would, right? <laughs> if, you, if we could, we could, we would. Absolutely not. Guys, the chain cannot be broken. It doesn't say God, those God predestined, he called, he justified, but if you really struggle in life, he's not gonna glorify you. If, if you're really having a hard time, if you're really doubting, if you're really struggling, if you're really dealing with an area of sin in your life, the, the, the chain is broken. No, Paul says the, the, the chain is absolute. It is complete. Those he predestined, he called, he justified, he is going to glorify. Guys, do you realize this? That your salvation defend, depends primarily and principally and decisively on God. And can we not to that say, thank you, Lord? Because if it was any other way, we would find some way to blow it. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You're trusting in Christ, guys, God will deliver you to the end. You will persevere. You will be glorified. It's back in being a child of the 70s and 80s, there used to be a very popular poem in Christendom, and those of you over 40 will know immediately, those under 40 will think this is all highly strange. There's a very popular poem called Footprints in the Sand, right? Now, some of you did have cards and paintings and cross stitches, and maybe, maybe you old hippies had a tattoo of that somewhere on your body. But, but for those who know the poem, it's, 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 it's an interesting poem. It's about two sets of footprints on the beach, and it's the person and the Lord, they're walking together, but at the most difficult points of life, right, the, the one set of footprints disappears, and only the Lord's footprints are left, and use your imagination, and, and, and the punchline of the poem is, well, God, where were you during those times? And he's like, my child, my child, don't you know, those were the times that I was carrying you, remember that? Well, in seminary, we used to mercilessly mock this poem. We did. We, we, we made up alternative words. Um, we recited it to each other. And we thought we were so sophisticated theologically. We were going to systematic theology class. And this cheesy poem, I mean, this is like the worst of the worst, as we said, between sips of scotch and puffs on the cigar, right? <laughs> but you know what? This week, I've had to repent. Because despite the aesthetics, despite the gosh awful packaging it's wrapped up in, right, it is 100% true. What God is promising to do by delivering you is to carry you when you cannot carry yourself. That's the whole point of the passage. I love Jesus' words about this in John 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now listen to this line. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Did you hear that? No one, no thing will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. As my friend 
friend Peter Paris had the first service, God never says oops, right? I had to quote Peter on that one. Guys, God never says oops in your life. God never says, oh, that, that caught me by surprise. Oh, that was, that, that, oh my goodness, what, what, to, the, to the chorus of angels, what, what are we gonna do? Let's get to work, right? That's not the God who's revealed in the Bible, and thank goodness it's not. There is no other God who you can have hope in than that. It's the one who works all things, who prays for you, who works for you, and will ultimately deliver you. Let's pray.